fellowship together around your word. We just ask now as we uh, look into uh, your holy scriptures that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us help, give us understanding, uh, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask, pray. Amen. Uh, Turn back to the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday we were in the uh, Gospel of Luke and we had some thoughts from chapter 2. And we, uh, I think we entitled the message, The Renown of His Birth. And we had, I trust, some concepts, things that we had maybe uh, had thought about or maybe had never thought about, but just the idea that the Word of God is a living book. And so it can be studied Uh, It can be meditated on. In fact, that is the way to healthy uh, Christian living is uh, thinking about the Holy Scriptures, uh, studying uh, the Word of God. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy, that if you're going to be a mature work person in the work of God, uh, one of the things you're going to be is uh, studious. And so uh, the title, The Renown of His Birth, you may be familiar with or have read uh, Leonard Sheldrake's book, uh, a, uh, The Lord Jesus, a, a Plant of Renown. And so it's a, a devotional, uh, or I guess uh, this is what they call it. It's a, a devotional book. And um, this is the title of all of his chapters, the renown of his birth and so on, the renown of his life, meaning, meaning that I guess the word renown... Uh, the idea that it can't be measured. There's nothing to compare the life of the Lord Jesus to. I mean, you can't look at anything in uh, creation and say, well, he uh, is exactly like that. You could say, uh, we see his fingerprints in his creation, but he's not like anything in the universe. And uh, I think this is, uh, you know, a little bit further on uh, in this passage here, Uh, the writer introduces the Lord Jesus Christ as the uh, man Christ Jesus. And so this is totally unique, right? The Lord Jesus is totally unique. And so uh, last week we thought of the, again, it was to say the renown of his uh, birth from Luke chapter 2. This morning we want to think of the Uh, what we're going to entitle the renown of his burial. But before we get there again, we're going to try and gather some thoughts together, some uh, passages that we've uh, read before, uh, possibly some uh, ideas of uh, interpretation that we've been, you know, encouraged to think about. And there are rules for interpreting uh, interpreting the Word of God. And so um, one of the ones we want to think about this morning is, is what... Uh, theology might call the bookends of theology. This idea that how the book end, uh, how the book starts, uh, is how it ends, right? And we've heard that lots of times. You know how it begins in Genesis is how it ends in the Revelation. Uh, I think we've seen uh, that true in uh, the individual books. We see that in the New Testament. People have pointed out to us before that how the New Testament. Uh, begins is how it ends. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is especially easy, I think, to see that how it begins is how it ends. And so in chapter 1, uh, in chapter 1, uh, everything is, uh, everything that the emphasis is on is, is closed. 
right? Uh, a closed womb, uh, a closed uh, temple, uh, and then uh, a closed mouth. Now, if you've ever heard a uh, message on Luke chapter 24, and you have, right, the two on the road to Emmaus, uh, what often is the significance that people make from the two on the road to Emmaus in that whole section of Scripture? Well, uh, they use the, uh, the interpretation or the, the principle of interpretation of uh, repetition of words. And in Luke chapter 24, the repetitious where the word that's repeated over and over is opened, 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 opened. And, of course, they... Uh, People that like to line these things up say, well, there's, you know, seven divine openings in Luke chapter 24. And it's true. You can go through and see that that's factual. And so it's in contrast to the beginning of the book. Uh, everything is closed. But the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ opened, right? It opened things. It opened uh, it opened uh, people's understanding. Uh, it opened the way into the to the temple. In the beginning, the nobody, only one man entered in. Uh, the Gospel of Luke ends with um, everybody uh, in the temple. Uh, in the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Luke, there's this, it seems, a, a limited understanding, right? A limited understanding of uh, scripture or prophecy. Uh, at the end, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ opens the disciples' understanding that they might understand accurately the holy scriptures, right? So uh, there's again this idea of these things being connected. I just want to draw a few. Uh, the one we thought about last week, uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 7, it says, uh, she brought forth her verse, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Okay, and so we say if this is true that, you know, how it begins is how it ends. Here's the point. Uh, they, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Well, we say, well, what's that at the end of the Gospel of Luke? Well, that's when it says that uh, they... Uh, wrapped his body, right, in swaddling bands. They didn't lay him in a manger, they laid him in a tomb, right? So, I mean, that's not random stuff, that's, that's connected. Then it says here, uh, because there was no place for them in the inn. We thought about that last week, and we said that was odd to us, that there was no place for him in the inn, because that inn should have been his family home. That's what we, we, we suggested. Well, that's what we speculate, actually. That, uh, and if people disagree with that, we say, well, okay, you tell me where the family home went. Where did it go? Because they had a family home. David, he was, he was the, only, <laughs> the only direct descendant of David that had a genealogy that could take on both his mother and his father's side back to King David. So where was David's family home? Because David had a home in Bethlehem. And it didn't get, uh, it didn't move uh, families uh, during the year of Jubilee because it was in an unwalled town. And so we say, where was the family home? So it should have been there. And so it's a tragedy that the Lord Jesus, you know, Joseph, Mary, uh, bearing the Lord Jesus uh, in her womb, come to uh, Bethlehem where he should have had a house and it was gone, right? There was no place, that's the word place for him in the inn. 
That's the word used. Now, we translate it room, but it's really the word place. And that's spiritually significant because this is the first mention of place, uh, place in Luke's gospel. You know where the last mention of place is in Luke's gospel? Turn over, uh, chapter 23. Verse 32, it says there, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And this is the same word, okay, the same word uh, that's used in uh Chapter 2, they found no place for him in the end. That's the first mention of the word. Here's the last mention of the word. And so it's, it's, uh, it has spiritual significance, this idea that they, they couldn't find a place for him in his birth, but eventually men found a place for him, and it was the hill called Calvary. Uh, what we know is uh, Mount Moriah. And this is where this happen. This would be Calvary. And so what's significant about this is that um, he owned, we suggested, he owned the inn, or it was the family home in Luke chapter 2. What about Moriah? What about Mount Moriah? We say, well, we actually know quite a bit about Mount Moriah. I'm not just sure if we've ever put it all together, but it's quite a significant mountain in Scripture. Uh, it's where Abraham offered Isaac. That's Genesis chapter 22. Okay? Uh, you know, uh, people who understand the lay of the land in Israel actually tell us that Moriah was a ridge. It wasn't just a peak. It was actually a ridge, and it had three plateaus. And uh, most likely, Abraham offered Isaac on the lowest of the three plateaus. Um, and you fast forward the scripture, and, and you come to this point in David's life, and now David is living in Jerusalem. Now, uh, what's significant about that? Well, uh, say, well, it's a walled city, so, I mean, he could, even though he wasn't from Benjamin, right? David was from Judah, Bethlehem, Judah. He shouldn't have really had uh, property in uh, Benjamin, right? That was Saul's family, so he shouldn't have really have had property there. But uh, he did uh, take the city not from Israelites, he took it from Jebusites. So somehow, uh, although Israel was to take over all this land. They never really fulfilled that promise, right? They never really, really followed through with what the Lord told them to do. So it was the Jebusites that were holding the city of Jerusalem. And so then David, uh, you remember with his, uh, with his captain Joab, they took the city of Jerusalem and it became David's city. So it, although it was, he was from, uh, from Judah, he's now got a city in, in, in Benjamin. Uh, then it goes on to say in David's life that when the angel of the Lord was judging 
Remember, it was judging uh, the nation of Israel for David's sin of numbering the people. It says that David looked out of his uh, out of his uh, temple or his uh, palace window, and he looked across to the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite that was on Mount Moriah. And so he saw the angel, and so he, uh, you remember he uh, he approached. Uh, he approached Ornan the Jebusite, and there's this transaction that happens. Uh, it's recorded in two books. It's recorded in Kings, and it's recorded in Chronicles. Uh, it's one of those contradictions. People say the contradictions of Scripture. Uh, in uh, in uh, Kings, it says he bought the place for 50 shekels, right? The, the, he bought the place and the implements, the oxen. Uh, he bought them for 50 shekels, uh, but then in, in, in First Chronicles it says he bought the place for uh, 600 shekels of gold. So 50 shekels of silver in kings, 600 shekels of gold in First uh, Chronicles. People say, see, he right here, here's a contradiction in Scripture, two different numbers for the same place. And so they say, well, we don't believe that, of course, because we don't believe in contradictions in Scripture. So what's happening? Well, uh, it would appear that David bought from with the with the silver, right? With the silver, the fifty shekels of silver, he bought the the implements and the oxen that Ornan was using for sacrifice, and the actual threshing floor itself. But uh, six hundred shekels of gold is an astronomical amount of money. So, what did he buy for that? Well, we would suggest that what he bought for that was what it says there, the place, the whole place, he bought Mount Moriah, which was outside the, the gates of the, outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So it was in the, uh, it was in the inherited property of the Benjamites, but it wasn't held by the Benjamites. They didn't have it. Ornan the Jebusite had it, and he sold it to David and to David's family. So why that becomes significant is that uh, the Lord Jesus comes to Bethlehem to the inn. They reject him in the inn. Could have been his family home. They eventually find a place and they crucify him on Mount Moriah, which actually also was his property. He owned it. You say, what a travesty, the human heart. Say, well, we, we, we would never do that. Say, well, we actually do it all the time. I mean, uh, he made us. We're his own. He came to his own people, and they rejected him. And so this idea of, of rejecting the Lord in our lives, I mean, it's, sadly, it's our, our heritage. And so uh, you have this, uh, this idea of the, how these things start and how they finish and how they're connected. And so I want to think of um, uh, this morning, when we think of his burial, we think of people. But before we read about the man I want to read about, we want to read uh, in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, uh, we are introduced to uh, Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a great man of the Pharisees. Uh, only only told, told us, only introduced to us in John's gospel. Um, not sure of all the spiritual significance of that, uh, but not mentioned elsewhere, mentioned in John's gospel. Now, I did say in uh, passing that at the end of Luke's gospel, 
that the Lord Jesus, uh, when he opened their understanding, okay, when he opened the disciples' understanding after his resurrection, do you remember it specifically says that he showed them in the books of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the prophets that he must die, be buried, and rise again. So this idea that, that you could read about it in the Pentateuch in the books of Moses, you could read about it in the Psalms, and you could read about it in the prophets. So this idea that if you search the Old Testament scriptures, according to Luke chapter 24, and according to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you had an eye to discern, you could, you could read about his birth, his death, and his burial, and you could even read, if you had discerning eyes, you could read about his resurrection. I mean, were there people in the Old Testament who, who understood these things? Say, absolutely. The Lord Jesus said, uh, Abraham saw my day, he rejoiced, and he was glad. What day did he see? Well, no doubt he saw Calvary. No doubt when Abraham was standing on Mount Moriah and he was seeing a ram taking the place of his beloved son Isaac, somehow he understood that to be the doctrine of substitution and he understood something about Calvary and he rejoiced the day of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, this is what the Lord Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. He opened their understanding for, with regards to the book of Moses, uh, the Psalms, and the prophets. So, I just want to, uh, one, one, one section from John chapter 3. The Lord Jesus says in verse 14, To Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what would he think about? What would Nicodemus think about? Well, he would think about the books of Moses, right? That's exactly what he would think about. He would think about Numbers chapter 21, right? So he would be thinking about, remember this sort of clue the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection? Well, this is a long time before his resurrection. So he gives to Nicodemus, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And then he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a title from where? That's a title from the Psalms. So he's got Moses, now he's got the Psalms, okay, he's telling Nicodemus. Uh, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What would he be thinking of? Well, he's thinking for sure, prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah talked about this. You know, uh, we believe and preach in the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always the son. He didn't become the son. He was always the son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The son wasn't born. The son always was. And so... The Lord Jesus gave Nicodemus, hey, many, many years before he talked to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, he gave them, Nicodemus, the same clue 
to interpreting the Word of God. That these things could be found in, in the books of Moses, they could be found in the Psalms, they could be found in the prophets. Right? So he would, um, I'm sure that Nicodemus, uh, this opened up a whole vein of thinking for him. This gave him a new hunger for the Old Testament to go back and to see Christ in all the scriptures. And so we just gather that thought. Now turn, um, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 27. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body of Jesus to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb. In, no, sorry, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Okay, Mark chapter 15. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Verse 42, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Turn over um, one page, a couple of pages, to um, uh, Luke chapter 2, and we're just again going to gather... Uh, another account of another man. We're going to hopefully weave this together at some point. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Behold, it says in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, notice this, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. And so, uh, here's a man. The Bible is very clear. He's just, he's devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, he has this opportunity to uh, lift the babe up in his arms. So we say that um, in Luke's gospel especially, we see, we see it in other parts obviously, but in Luke's gospel especially, we see how these things are connected, you know, how it begins, 
how it ends. So uh, we're introduced to Simeon in chapter 2. Turn over to Luke chapter 23. And we'll read about Joseph in Luke's gospel. And of course, this is not repetition. There's ideas that are repeated from the other gospels, right, from the synoptics from Matthew and Mark. But there's things that, that are added. So now this is at the end of Luke's gospel. It says, now behold, in verse 50, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, good and just. So, I mean, it's just like Simeon, good and just. Uh, you remember what was Simeon doing? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's what it said. Uh, what's Joseph doing? It says in verse 51, He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So here's another just and devout man. At the end of the gospel, he's also waiting just like Simeon. Uh, you remember Simeon had this opportunity to uh, take the babe up in his arms. How about uh, Joseph in Luke's gospel? It says, this man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb. You think this stuff is random? You think this is fluke? Like this is just a hodgepodge? Or is there spiritual significance to the word of God? This is, this is by the Spirit of God. You know that in science, the more powerful the microscope, you know what scientists realize? How small things really are. The more powerful the microscope, the smaller they realize creation is. The larger, more powerful the telescope, they realize how immense the universe is. But somehow the, the Bible isn't like that. You know what? The Bible, the Lord Jesus says, is eternal. It's going to last forever. I think you can read these things and that they're not random. And so uh, what a contrast. Uh, 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 Simeon has this opportunity. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the opportunity to lift the babe up in his arms, Joseph to, to take the body down. Um, we read, uh, we didn't look at it, but it says that uh, of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, that they came with haste. We read it last week. They came with haste and they found the babe lying in a manger. Well, at the end of the gospel, Luke, you remember that it says they came to the tomb in a hurry. And guess what? They found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, on and on it goes. But like, we want to turn over uh, something quite unique, and that's John's gospel at the end. Uh, chapter 19, verse 38 says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this, this should be somewhat almost mind-blowing because uh, the scholars tell us that John's gospel is almost totally unique. All of his content is totally unique to himself. There's no, no repetition. Well, a couple of things are repeated. 
the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle of the more than 153 miracles that are recorded in Scripture in the life of the Lord Jesus. Only one of them is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. They said that has spiritual significance. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, is in all four Gospels. So this is this, whatever he's up to, you can be sure, you can be sure that it has a special place in the heart of the Father. Whatever he's up to, it has significance. And so it says this, after this, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place... Where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. And so, although the story is repeated, it's not repetition. There are things added to the account in John's Gospel. Uh, we find out that there's a garden connected with this tomb. Uh, we find from reading that, that, that this garden is near to Calvary, Malefactor's Hill, where the Romans crucified criminals. And so... I mean, it would, I think, behoove us to, you know, try and, as we seek to understand Joseph, and in this case, Nicodemus, uh, try to understand something of what these guys were thinking about. What were they up to? Well, we know that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were rich. We get that from... Uh, um, Matthew's gospel tells us Joseph was rich. Uh, we can put together that Nicodemus was rich just simply by the size of the offering that he gave to the Lord Jesus in chapter 19. Uh, $200,000 worth of spices or something like that, 100 pounds of precious spices, they say is street value, uh, 150000 200000 So clearly he had some wealth. Um, we learn that, that Joseph was um, not from Jerusalem. He was from a long ways away, 25 miles away, Arimathea. And so he came down and he bought a plot of ground outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, we know that reading the Old Testament, that, that, that the tombs, the tombs of the kings, the, the, the tombs of the honorable were always inside the gates. 
right? You remember you read these stories, and depending how a king uh, served and how he lived, uh, that's how it was determined where he was buried, right? You know, you read through that, and they say this, uh, you know, he uh, died, he wasn't buried in the city or in the tombs of David, he was actually still buried inside Jerusalem, but not in David's tombs, right? So this was, this was how it was determined. And then, and then if, a, if a person was a real bad guy, he was actually cast outside the gates, right? And so uh, it was determined, uh, you know, how, how a person lived and what kind of a person they were as to where they were buried. We say, well, we see this all the time. I mean, um, uh, we went up to Boston on this trip and took this trolley tour and and, uh, you know, as he's driving by this, I don't know, this, it's a graveyard. It's the size of this building. It's right here amongst all these. And they go, he goes over here. Somebody from the Mayflower is buried in there. You can go look at it. And there are people lined up looking at that, that tombstone. Maybe I, obviously, that's history. But this idea of, of where people are buried and, and recognition and, and uh, respect given, and we say, yeah, we, we understand that. And so... Uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, has lots to say about that. But in this story, here's a man who was rich, uh, lived in Arimathea, 25 miles north of Jerusalem. He comes down. He doesn't buy a burial plot inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the gates. I think he could have afforded, but he doesn't do that. He actually buys a plot in view, the Bible says, in view of, of Malefactor's Hill. Like he can see Malefactor's Hill. He can see Calvary from where this tomb is. Uh, so he buys this plot. Uh, he plants a garden, you know, a garden. And then he hews a tomb himself with his own hands. You say, he, you think he did that for himself? You say, well, if he did, that is not very honorable. I mean... That's in the, the language of Absalom in the Old Testament. Remember, Absalom uh, built a monument for himself, right? Because he said, hey, nobody else is going to remember me, so I'll build myself a monument so they won't forget me. You say, is that what Joseph of Arimathea was doing? And we say, no, we don't suspect for a second that he was hewing that tomb with that chisel and that hammer for himself. Uh, they were planning something, these men. And I don't think it just happened on this day. Uh, I suspect that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were friends right from the very beginning. Uh, it says they were disciples of the Lord Jesus. Uh, John chapter 3 is at the beginning of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. And so when the Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem, Nicodemus meets him. And you know, he has this conversation with him at night. Do you think that was the only time they ever talked? You know, the Lord Jesus visited Passover, you know, on Passover at least, Passover and other feasts as well. Uh, he came to Jerusalem. Do you think Nicodemus ever talked to the Lord Jesus again, or do you think he just talked to him once? I suspect every opportunity he got to talk to the Lord Jesus, he did. Uh, I suspect that what Nicodemus knew, his friend Joseph knew, and they communicated about this stuff, and that the key that, the key that 
uh, to interpreting scripture that the Lord Jesus gave to Nicodemus at the beginning of his public ministry, that he told that key to his friend Joseph. And so uh, I say it's, it's doubtful that he bought that tomb and planted that garden on Malefactor's Hill and hewed that tomb for himself. It's impossible to believe that. So we say, well, who did he do it for? Well, we suspect he did it for what he did here. He did it for the Lord. Say, well, would it be possible for them to be able to figure that out from Scripture? Could they figure that out from the Old Testament? We'll say, well, actually, they could. Could, could they know the day that the Lord Jesus died? Yep, they could know the day. They could get that from Exodus chapter 12. Could they know the hour? Yeah, they could know the hour. They could get that from Exodus 12 too. People say, could, could they know the year? Yeah, they could know the year. They could get that from, from Daniel. They could figure that out. Sir Robert Anderson showed you how the math doesn't lie. The day the Lord Jesus prophesied 500 years, nearly 500 years before the day he was prophesied to ride into the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, that was the day he rode in. He was exactly on time. He works on a calendar, and he's never early, he's never late, he's on time. And so they could have figured out the year, so they could have figured out the day, they could have figured out the hour. Uh... From Daniel, they could have figured out the year. Uh, could they figure out the place? Could they know that? Yeah, they could know that too. From Genesis chapter 22. It says, in the mount of the Lord it will be seen. They knew that that that. Uh, the Mount of the Lord, that Mount Moriah, that would be the place that it would happen. Uh, could they know that the Lord Jesus was going to be crucified? Yes, absolutely they could know that. They could know that from the Old Testament. In fact, that was one of the keys that the Lord Jesus gave to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, they had all this figured out. Hey, what we're reading, what they did, this just didn't come together in an hour. This, this took a long time of preparation. So they, they uh, Joseph purchased the property. He hewed the tomb. Um, they got together. He got together the, the, the linen to wrap the body. Uh, Nicodemus got together the hundred pounds of aloes, the spices. He didn't bring that on Thursday or Friday. I don't know which day you see the Lord Jesus dying. Whatever day that is, he didn't just carry that over. I mean, they'd been, they'd been planning this. They'd been planning this for a long time. Say, well, um, why would they even, why would they even be interested in doing this. Well, I suspect, uh, as they were reading through maybe Isaiah 53, 
they read that what John tells us in uh, John 19, verse 31, that the Jews' intention, and they had an intention, was that the Lord Jesus uh, would be crucified as a malefactor and he would be buried in the outside place. That's what it says they wanted to do. That was their intention. It wasn't random. They intended that he be crucified, the malefactors, and cast into the outside place. And that's what, in fact, what Isaiah 53 says their intention was. And then it says, but he found his grave with the rich, or with the rich in his death, in his burial. And so I, I, I can't help but think that as Joseph and uh, Nicodemus are reading through Scripture, and they read Isaiah 53, and they see it's a rich man that's going to give the Savior a king's burial. Why not us? We're rich. We could do it. And Nicodemus says, I'm in. And so that's what they did. They brought together this elaborate plan based on Scripture to give the Lord Jesus a king's burial. Now, of course, you look on the Internet and um, people say that, well, you know, they didn't know he was going to rise again, and that's why they used... Um, they used a hundred pounds uh, so that so that he wouldn't um, stink, right? And so that uh, it wouldn't be an embarrassment to his followers. And we say that's ridiculous. He was never going to stink. I mean, that's uh, one of the distinctions we were reminded uh, just recently as we were thinking through this that uh, the difference between uh, Lazarus and the Lord Jesus is Lazarus was four days in the grave. That's the starting of corruption. The psalm said that he, God, would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. So he didn't. He was three days only in the tomb. No, no corruption. So it wasn't about that. Uh, I think that it was an act of worship on the part of these two men. They did not think that the Lord Jesus was not rising again. They were aware of that. I mean, if they had figured all these things out uh, from Scripture already, they were plenty aware that the Lord Jesus was going to rise again. And so they took and um, they wrapped his body. You just kind of try to picture this. Uh, you know, it, it's really the only thing that brings logic to some of the things that happened. Like, for instance... Uh, how was how was Joseph in, uh, able to go to Pilate so quickly? Right, because it does seem odd. Like that when when Joseph goes to ask for the body, Pilate says, "Is he already dead? How did he know that?" Well, you say, "Well, where was he?" Well, no doubt he was hiding in the tomb that he'd hewn. That's where they would have been, and we know that both him and possibly Nicodemus were there, and it was close to the cross, so they would have heard the Lord Jesus, loud, victorious cry, it is finished. And so at that point, Joseph goes and asks the body. Uh, now it's light. Uh, now there's these Jews, and so now they 
uh, Jews who are sitting there, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, they see uh, Joseph walking with the soldier to see if the Lord Jesus is really dead. And he pierces his side, you remember? And uh, then it says, Pilate gave the body to Joseph and him and Nicodemus. I would have went and they took the body of the Lord Jesus, I would suggest tenderly down from the cross, and they prepared his body for burial. I don't know a greater act of worship recorded in Scripture. In fact, it's recorded in, like I said, all four Gospels. It was, it was precious to the heart of the Father what these men were willing to do. Uh, willing to uh, take the outside place. You know, people speculate as to why Nicodemus uh, came to Jesus by night. Well, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night because he knew what it would cost to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It would cost him everything. And so he, he wanted an opportunity to assess, to think about whether it was worth it or not. Well, you come to the end of John's gospel and you determine that Nicodemus had figured out whether it was worth it or not. And so these men forsook everything for the Lord Jesus. Um, they uh, went outside the camp. You know, that's what the uh, Hebrew writer talks about, outside the camp, this boldness to go outside the camp to the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, in Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about when the, when the, the priest is taking the, the ashes of this burnt bullock that's been wholly offered to the Lord, you know, as this transition happens, that uh, he changes his garments. There's a changing of the order. There's a changing of the garments in the priest. Well, you know, you see that in picture form in, in, in Joseph and Nicodemus's life. I mean, these were leaders in the Sanhedrin up till this day. This would be the last day they would participate in anything in the Sanhedrin. Uh, they, would, they would be disqualified by the Jews for their association with the Lord Jesus Christ. So although, uh, although um, you know, many of his disciples in fear had forsook him, not Joseph, not Nicodemus, they were willing on that day to fly their colors for the Lord Jesus. Uh, they say history, church history, uh, first century history says that uh, it did physically cost Nicodemus everything. That he was a poor man after this account. Uh, that it didn't just cost him his wealth in the myrrh and aloe. It cost him his position, everything associated with his wealth. But no doubt, he would not exchange anything that he did for Christ uh, for the recognition of man. So we trust that as we think about these things, and we see uh, Christians who've gone on before, who've been students of the Word of God, who've sought to uh, see the Bible, to read it, to understand it, to apply it, uh, to make it come alive in their lives, that this is what the Lord honors. Uh, one 
commentator says he can't imagine that there's a more honorable man in Scripture than Joseph of Arimathea. He said, well, maybe that's true. Uh, but yet that's what we learn of him, that he was a lover of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> he was not, not ashamed Christ. See, that's what we want to be. We want to love the Lord Jesus. Be bold in our witness uh, to others of our association with him. These men were not embarrassed to be connected associated with Christ. We say, that's our hope that we might be like that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're uh, grateful for your word this morning. Uh, We're thankful for those who've uh, gone on before uh, and in every way have been good examples to us. Uh, Father, we're uh, mindful that we need help in our lives by your spirit uh, to interpret, to understand your word Uh, We desire to see the Lord Jesus in the books of Moses. Uh, We desire to be reminded of the Son of Man in the Psalms, to be uh, encouraged like David, uh, encouraged in the Lord. Uh, Father, we're thankful for all the words of the prophets that point us to the Uh, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that point us to the significance of the work he accomplished. Father, we're thankful uh, for him today, the one who was uh, wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him by his stripes. Father, we know that has a real bearing on your people Israel, but Father, we're grateful that the Uh, God of Israel, the Savior of Israel, is our Savior too. And so we just pray your blessing on your people today. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.